Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short stories from Kenya and when we do get them, stories from the rest of the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. We're doing something different on this episode. I'm taking you back in time and sharing a personal piece of my history. Here's The Freeing of the Slaves in East Africa by James Jumambotella. The children of the freed slaves who lived in Freetown, Mombasa, were fond of asking about their homeland and their fathers also loved to answer their questions. Nearly every evening, Juma sat on the mat beside his father, listening while he sang the songs of the old days. One evening, he asked about the maize that was grown in their homeland. His father replied, My son, at the coast there is no maize worth mentioning. If you wish to see real maize, go back to our country. If you roasted a maize cob, you could not finish eating it. So when I think of the old home, my tears hang on my eyelashes. Our farms were much bigger than these that are down here. You could not throw a stone with a sling to reach the other end of the farm. We had so much maize we did not even notice when some was stolen. During the harvest, we gathered only half of the crops to fill our silos. The rest we left in the farms. The last season's crop was set on fire in order to fill the granaries anew. Juma listened attentively while thinking in his heart, I wish I could see that country and all that was in it. Then he asked, What about the groundnuts? How did they grow up there? His father answered, My son, we did not value them very much. Mothers mixed them with food so they cooked to give a sweet taste, as we do with the coconuts down here. They also gave pots of them to the children to keep them quiet. When the parents visited far fields, the children who were left to look after the village sometimes made holes in the storehouse and washed with pleasure the nuts flowing to the ground. They then roasted and ate them to satisfy their hunger. Juma asked, were they not beaten when their mothers and fathers returned from the fields? Children were never beaten for a worthless thing like that, he was told. Nuts were food only for children and monkeys. Then Juma wanted to know about the fish of that land and what they were like, his father said. You do not have big and fat fishes here, as we did up there. We who sit here, we would not be able to finish one. On hearing this, Juma felt a certain pride and he was greatly interested as he himself liked to go fishing. Often his father had laughed at him and the tiny fishes he caught. The old man now continued, When one of our fish was roasted, its fat always put out the fire. Then in order to finish it, we had to invite our neighbours. It is the fact that this story of the fish, which made Juma roar with laughter, has been told over and over again to the children by the freed slaves. Juma was also interested in hearing about the root of the cassava plant. His father told him, If we wish to eat one of our muhogo, even if it was one we had planted ourselves, we had to invite people to help us dig it out. On the appointed day, the mother prepared a kind of beer made of millet to give those who helped after they had dug, not before. This is how we did it. We got up early in the morning and beat the drum to represent a sign of pulling out Mohogo. And whoever heard the sound would know that he was wanted by old Mponda for this task, and he would come home. There was a song which we sang while pulling Mohogo. Juma begged to hear it, but his father said, I cannot favor you by singing the song to you. Your mother has not prepared beer for me. Suppose I sing and then rush to pull out other people's mohogo. What would you and your mother think of me? Would you not say I have become a madman? Do not persuade me to sing. Just listen to the story. Did I tell you that our mohogo was pulled out by married men only? When Juma heard this, he said, I possess a garden of muhogo down here, and I am only a boy. I am going to pull it out when it is ready. Well, that is all right, his father said. Down here, we are in the lands of the Wazungu, and we keep their ways. 
Then he continued, Now let me finish telling you about Muhogo. When old Mpona's Muhogo was pulled out, even the pullers fell down with it. The trees were so big and produced so much root that the men could pull only two a day. And even then, these men were tired the next day. Some of the roots were so large that you would think they were the horns of an elephant. All this time, Juma's ribs ached with laughing so much. His mother, who was preparing the evening meal, interrupted her husband. You had better leave telling the story. That boy's ribs are so stretched with laughing. It is not good. The father said, he asked me to relate the story. And now instead of listening, he laughs. But Juma, who really was listening in spite of his laughter, begged his father to continue. The wives of old Mponda invited other women to help split this mohogo with an axe as you split firewood here. Then they dried the split pieces and later pounded them into flour to use for food. The women had a share as a reward for helping. If you saw these women carrying bundles of mohogo, you'd think they were carrying firewood. Now Juma was called to the kitchen to get water ready for his father. As the mother was just about to bring the food she had prepared and the father was left alone, singing one of the old songs. Next day, he called his son to hear more about the early days. Sit down, and I will tell you the kinds of food we had. Mohogo was our chief food. It is substantial and goes well with roasted fish. We did not have much rice, though we saw plenty of it from Mozambique. But we did have millet, and we made beer out of it. The beer of the new crops, being the first that was made, was taken to the chief of the district. Our bananas ripened on their stalks. Birds ate as many as they liked and were not driven away. Bananas and many other foods were not sold as they are down here. Look at our beehive, the old man continued sadly. It is now over a year since I put it on this cashew apple tree and would not get any honey worth anything. The day before yesterday, when we went to collect some, we could not feel your mother's bowl. Look at this old Mambila. If he were in our homeland, he would be content with one. There, a high full of honey broke the branch of a tree for the weight of it. But we seldom hung the hives. There were huge trees in the hollows of which bees formed their honey and the honey hunters would go into the forest to scoop out as much as they liked. Then we had castor oil, which we had valued. We planted many castor oil trees in order to get the oil which we used in rubbing our bodies, especially during the Ngoma days. Juma made a funny face as he did not care for the smell of castor oil. His father went on to tell him about the traditional dance. It was the biggest enjoyment we had. When the chief of the district was happy, he would order drums to be beaten for many days. Women cooked plenty of food and carried it to the dancing grounds at the chief's village. Whosoever refused to attend these dances was fined heavily because he had ignored the chief's invitation. One day, our chief ordered a big ngoma, and that was my last before I was caught and made a slave. Our chief ordered this dance to go on for the whole moon, and the people from the other side of Lake Nyasa came to join. But when we had been dancing for ten days, we heard that somebody at Maonga's village had died. Maonga, who was in charge of the beating of the big drum, walked away quietly. The others followed his example, and all left the dancing ground, not daring to speak, lest the one who brought death might still be about. Though we had been merry, our merriness ceased. Death was looked upon as a dreadful thing, filling everyone with fear. People said the Creator had visited them and was not pleased with them. They whispered, for if they spoke loudly, they might hear of another death somewhere. They did not cry as people do here. They just kept quiet when death was about. Even a traveler would stop his journey and a farmer would not weed his farm for the season. But fortunately, people did not die very often as they do here at the coast. 
Babies died sometimes when they were born, but except for accidents, most people lived to a ripe old age. Thieves and wizards and the witches were stoned to death or burned, but one would not mourn for such as these. Then Juma's father asked, Have you seen old Chiponda? Have you ever been in his house? What did you see there? He has many skins, Juma answered. You have spoken truth, for he was a great hunter in our country. He was liked by our chief for his bravery. Nearly everybody depended on Chiponda to protect their farms from buffaloes and elephants. When these animals came to spoil the crops, Chiponda would hunt them with his followers, and he was so clever with his bow and arrow that he never returned with an empty hand. He hunted in rainy weather and in dry weather. There was always plenty of meat in his village, free to anyone who wanted it. We had a song composed about this courage and cleverness. Not only did he hunt, but when enemies came upon us during our annual dances, Chiponda and his followers would watch in the bush for them. What kind of people were they that troubled you? Juma wanted to know. You said you used to enjoy the homeland. His father explained. There was one tribe which was like the Maasai of the highlands. We did not know where they lived, but we did know that they were better warriors than we, for when they came, which was not often, they overpowered us. Their bodies were strong, though delicately built, and their long legs enabled them to run well. They had quick tempers, and they fed on game. Their weapons were spears, asagai, shields, and knobkeries. Big thieves they were, who came by sneaking and stole women and children. Once when I was young, I went with others to a valley where there was the favorite grass for the goats. While I was herding in the ridge, my companions were caught in the valley below by these fierce tribesmen. I heard the noise but could not understand their language. They took the herders and their goats. Our people chased them that day, shooting many arrows, but they defended themselves with their shields and got away. One of them, however, was killed by accident. Running from Chiponda, he fell into the hole trap which old Chimwenye had prepared to catch wild pigs who were spoiling his mohogo. When this giant was killed, he was left on the road for everyone to see. How he managed to carry the things he had on him amazed us. Chiponda learned to be a better warrior by imitating this custom of carrying many weapons and much food. Another time they came, these warriors captured our people when they were catching flying ants. The old man then explained the tradition concerning these insects. It is well for you to know that when our people wished to catch these ants, they went first to the witch doctor to see if the time was right, lest some misfortune befall them. If the witch doctor allowed it, then the chief ordered drums to be beaten. Everyone understood that these were drum signals giving permission to catch ants. When he heard that this warning was necessary, Juma almost fell down with laughing. He asked his father, Why all this fuss over such tiny insects? Insects such as ants ought not to be caught without consideration, the father said. If they are, the person catching them is likely to become deaf. Moreover, it is not good to be on anthills, for there are certain spirits that live in some of the holes. Also, do you not know that the first man on earth came from an anthill? When the mother heard these frightful stories, she objected strongly, saying to her husband, Why do you teach a boy the affairs of elderly people? Suppose he dreams tonight about all you have been telling him. What will you do? Juma's father continued about the old days. In a big village like that of Chimwemwe, there were many children, and they always played games in the night by moonlight. Mothers and fathers often went to sit and watch them play. The children would sing and carry one another and jump over one another. Some would mimic a war cry. Others would act a new wedding. Some would act as judges, while others would play the parts of thieves being brought to justice or of wizards being condemned to death by stoning. As the parents watched, they were able to tell that the son of so-and-so would become a leader. 
the girls also had their games, and from these, it was possible to tell which girls would grow into good mothers and which would become bad or lazy mothers. Now, when you hear others say they wish to return to their homeland, you will know it is because they are thinking of such things, as I have told you, especially of the free dances and the food which costs nothing. When the father ended, Juma asked him, My father, why do you leave such a beautiful country and come here when you say that although you long to go back, yet you have no hope of ever seeing it again? Pleased with this question, the old man said, My son, I can see how keen you are to know the whole story. That is good. I'll explain it to you from the beginning to end. And you must have a good memory in order to tell it to your children and your children's children. But if you can, tell the world that would be the best thing you could do. So following these words, every evening Juma finishes work in order to place himself on the mat beside his father to be told the whole story. And the mother came also because she was the father's memory to remind him of what he had forgotten. And this is how it came about the story of the capture or freeing of the Freetown slaves, as told by one named Botella to his son, Juma. Juma's father said, It happened in our country during the closing rains of the year, in the evening when the flying ants leave their holes. The sacrifices had been offered in the trees of sacrifice, the god of rain. The witch doctors had prophesied a prosperous season. The people had been encouraged to plant and weed industriously, and already we had good showers of rain. The farms, weeded and well-kept, looked beautiful, and the people were now busy catching the flying ants of the season. Towards evening in that country, these insects came out from their holes. The fathers went early in the afternoon to prepare pits for the ants to fall in, Later, they carried torches with which they burned the wings, after which they would push their bodies into the pits. The mothers then followed with their big baskets to scoop them out. These ants were very much liked. We always looked forward to their season. So while we rejoiced in trapping the ants, suddenly we had cries on all sides. We found that we were surrounded by strangers who began catching and binding us. Some of these enemies were light-skinned and others black like ourselves. The black ones had decorated their faces with cuts, a sight which terrified us. Therefore, we who were catching the ants were ourselves caught unaware. We who had been happy and secure in our country were not prepared to defend ourselves and could not run far. Men and women were captured and tied, hands and feet. Our captures were the Arabs in search of slaves and ivory for their market. They wore turbans and carried guns and swords. The black people who had come with them from Mozambique acting as guides were of the tribe of Wamakua, whose necks were fastened with cruel trees. Some of the trees had knots and some had forks, and they were fastened in such a way that the slaves could hardly move about and were in great pain. Everywhere our people were caught, in the farms and even in the houses. Those who were fishing and those who were hunting, those who were shepherding and those who were dancing, all, all were captured. Their huts and silos were set on fire. Even Chiponda and his followers were taken. And when they were known to be warriors of the district, they were tied hands backwards. Babies were taken from their mothers. Chaliwali, the head of the caravan and a very cruel man, killed many babies with his sword. He did not want their mothers to hinder his journey by nursing the little ones. When he saw the mothers shedding tears, he said to them, Do not cry, you will have babies in future. But they could not stop weeping for what Chaliwali said, and they wished they too were dead. Then Chaliwali and his friends quickly led the caravan towards the coast. Like a herd of goats in the pitch-dark night, the slaves were driven along, weeping, knowing they would never see this country again. Chaliwali was not pleased with their crying, and he warned them to stop it or he would cut off their heads. Saying this, he unfastened one of the weak slaves and cut off his head with his sword in sight of the other slaves. 
Do you want done to you what I've done to your fellow slave? Now this is a warning. If you do not hear my words, you will go the same way. Then he commanded them to repeat after him, Say ye, I am your master. And they said, Our master, in the Swahili language. But they could not pronounce it properly, as it was not their mother tongue. Instead of saying, Buana wetu, they said, Mufuana wentu. Going along the road, they were sorely hurt by those cruel trees tied to their necks, and all the way their ears were ringing. Charlie Wali with his Arab friends and some servants who acted as Askari then conducted the caravan in a new direction through fear of meeting other slave hunters. So they left the proper road and within three days found themselves in the huge forest which was called the Forest of Elephants. As Charlie Wali wished to get ivory, he very much wanted to hunt there. He told Umrere, who was his overseer of slaves, to lead the caravan on ahead and to camp at Elephant's Lake. He would remain in the forest hunting for ivory. He said, I dreamt I saw many elephant carcasses, and it may be my fortune to get ivory. But Umrere was not pleased to hear this dream. So he answered, Master, why do you dream of corpses when you know we are in this dangerous forest? Charlie Wali was very angry with Umrere, and he called him all sorts of names. Be quiet, he said. Away with you. You. It. You. Slave number one. Shut up. Silence. Shh. By this time, Umrere had knelt before Charlie Wali, saying, Master, I have come to my senses. Master, never will I say it again. Umrere then went in front with the caravan and left his master in the forest of elephants. But before he reached Elephant's Lake, he turned back again. Chaliwali, seeing the safari return, asked, What is wrong up there? Umrere answered, Master, I have seen many elephants at the lake. I thought I had better come to tell you before we would disturb them. My master, you will be a rich man if you kill all that herd. We're not going to camp there in case we disturb you. We will camp at the valley where lion grass is. Chaliwali said at once, Look well after the slaves. I shall not be long. I will join you when the sun is high. Do not go beyond the valley. Umrere left Chaliwali with his Arab friends, thinking of those elephants. But Chaliwali said to his companions, We had better not go to the lake. Let us hunt here in the forest. And let us look for the carcasses. We have no guns worthy to shoot live elephants. We had also better mind the wind lest they sent us, for then we should miss both ivory and slaves. So they wandered about in that big forest with much fear, looking for the elephants, but afraid of being seen by them first. The valley was a lovely place. The grass that was there was new to the slaves. The sun was hot enough to scorch the center of your head, but the valley was surrounded with trees and the wind and the fresh air were sweet and cool. Further on still, you could see the tops of the mountains through the trees, for the road to these mountains was under a thick forest. Here, the slaves rested, and even the fresh water was a tonic to them. Some rested on logs that were about, others lay on the soft grass. This place, though beautiful, was yet frightening. If you meet a land between the high banks, you would scarcely escape. It was obviously the country of the king of beasts, for there was no lesser animals to be seen. A dry branch fell, and the eyes of all the slaves turned in the direction of the noise to see what was coming. It was about midday when Umrere arrived in the valley and rested the slaves. He was very cross because of what his master had said to him and also because of the herd of elephants they had seen at Elephant's Lake. To cheer himself, he begged Mtipia for some of his tobacco, saying, Give me a bit of your tobacco to chew. Mine dropped when I knelt for pardon before Chadiwali when he was rebuking me for what I said. You must wait, said Mtipia. Wait, for I am busy checking the ivory. I must finish it because I do not want to be scolded by Chaliwali as you were this morning. You can thank God you're alive.
Otherwise, you would not now be able to chew tobacco. Umrere then complained about the journey. Oh, this journey is one of misfortune. I wish I were home. I should have gone to a witch doctor and see the future of it. Today, my master wanted to cut me with his sword. If I had not knelt and begged for pardon, I should have been dead by now. So Umrere cast his master where he was. You die there in that forest, you and yours. Umtipia asked him whether he would care for more tobacco, but Umrere said, I've had enough. Now I'm resting while I wait for the cursed one who is in that forest. Umtipia said to him, Well, anyway, I have a chance now to hunt for what people call lion charm in this grass. Whoever told you that a lion has a charm has really deceived you, answered Umrere. If a lion has a charm, then I should say a dog has one and so has a cat. For all those animals I have mentioned do sometimes vomit knots of grass, and that is what your people have seen. You are still young, Mtipia said. You have not crossed the sea yet to see the other world and to hear the tales they tell in countries far away. But Umbrera did not wish Mtipia to have the last word. He replied, Mtipia. A lion does not dwell in the grass. It dwells in the cave. And a lion... You! Mambo suddenly joined in. Mambo was one of our people who had been captured. Stop talking about that wicked animal. Do you not see that we are in the forest? Mrere, you have had a narrow escape from Charlie Wally's sword. And now you are still tempting trouble? Talking of things which bring evil instead of good? Why act like a child when you can claim to be a man? You say our journey is of misfortune, and behold, it is you who causes the misfortunes. If that animal is mentioned by name, he will appear. <laughs> if he appears, who is going to turn him from harming us? We have no charmed men here. Or perhaps you're tormenting us because you have no bonds like ours, eh? You could run away and leave us to be torn to pieces. Very well. Be careful. Your day may come too when you'll be bound. You never can tell. The reason Mambo said all this was that he was indeed frightened. His eyes were bloodshot with fear. He was the oldest man in the whole caravan, and he ought to have been left at home. But because he was stout and healthy, he had been taken with the others. You had better stop this conversation, Umrere warned them. Chaliwali will soon be coming, and if he finds us talking like free people when we are only slaves, I do not quite know what he will do to us. Umtipia, who loved to dispute, replied, Umrere, you are a coward. It was your cowardice that made you drop your tobacco before Chaliwali. Our master told us the hour when he will arrive, so why do you worry? Umrere tried to change the subject by saying, This is not the way we came when we journeyed up country. I do not know the road. You're a liar, Umrere, said Umtipia. You yourself told Chaliwali we had better come this way and rest here. Now you deny it? You should stop talking if you have nothing worth saying. Mambo agreed, saying, Truly, Umrere did speak of this road. I myself heard him tell Chaliwali that we had better camp in the valley of lion grass. Just then, Mambo heard the rustle of a dry branch falling, and his eyes looked quickly here and there, for he thought a lion might be coming. While in conversation, they heard a sound as of many people approaching. So Umbrella told the others, Be quiet. Chaliwali is coming. I can hear the trampling of feet. I know he has not got a single task because he abused me for nothing. Shh. At this, Umtipia, whose job it was to look after the ivory, exclaimed, Good! That will save me counting more tasks. When Umbrere and Umtipia lifted their eyes, they saw approaching a caravan of slaves greater than theirs, led by Bwana Ali. The real owner was Bwana Upate, an Arab and a very rich man who was known to the slaves as Mwinyu Upate. These slaves, coming from many tribes, had been caught far inland and had grown very thin, as they had been bound a long time. 
They also had cruel wooden yokes on their necks. Others, carrying ivory, had chains on their waists. The ivory had not been bought, for the slaves that were caught were also forced to hunt for it and to carry it to the coast, where they would be sold together with the loads. That is why the Arabs liked this trade. They made a profit from both slaves and ivory. Now, the slaves could not pronounce the name Buana Ali, so they called him Puanali. Puanali had been ordered by Munyupate to fight and plunder anyone he found hunting for slaves and ivory in that part of the country, which Munyupate considered his territory. When Mbere saw Puanali and his caravan coming to the valley of the lion grass, he feared greatly and swallowed the tobacco he was chewing. He wanted to run away and leave the slaves of Chaliwali, but Puanali aimed his gun at him, saying, If you move one step, you are a dead man. Umbrere thought he had better obey, and so he sat down with the slaves of his master. Puanali looked at the whole caravan of Chaliwali and envied him, seeing that the slaves were in good condition and not long captured. Then he saw Mtipia, who was well built, standing beside the slaves who bore the ivory, and Ponali asked him fiercely, Who are you? How is it you dare stand before me? When Mtipia heard these words, he also sat down. Ponali at once ordered his overseer Kupata to bind those two fellows, Mbrere and Mtipia, on a log which was there. Then Puanali moved towards Mrere and asked him questions, one after another. Who are you? Who is the owner of the slaves? And where is he? Umrere answered politely, saying, My name is Umrere. This caravan belongs to Chaliwali. We have left him behind hunting in the forest of elephants with his friends. Puanali asked him again, Has he any more slaves besides these? No, Buana, he answered except a few servants and his three Arab friends. He charged me to rest and to wait for him here. Now, Puanali perceived at once that this Arab, Chaliwali, was of a higher rank than he, and very wealthy, seeing he travelled with other Arabs who were his friends. Therefore, he proposed to fight him in order to put him to death. He talked fiercely to Mrere, saying, You are all thieves and also liars. Know that from this very moment you have become the property of Mwenyu Upate. If you do not agree, you will die on this very spot. When Umbrera explained these words to his company of slaves, all the slaves raised their voices and spoke as one. We are the property of Master Puanali. Master's property are we. Master's property. Master Puanali. And this they said with little better pronunciation of Swahili than before. Ponali ordered his overseer, Kupata, to mix the new slaves with his own. Kupata did as his bid, placing Chaliwali's slaves in the center of the caravan for safety. His master then said, Today we have had good fortune. When Mwinyupata sees all this, he will be very pleased. And now, Kupata, your work has increased. Guard these people properly, and when you reach the coast, your wages will be increased. You will also have a reward of four women to be your own property. Hearing this, Kupata became very sharp in looking after the slaves. Many times he spoke angrily and threatened to burn them with a red-hot iron if they did not obey. Old Mambo did not like to hear this at all. He did not want his body burnt. So... That was what came of the words which were spoken about the journey by Umbrere when he was chewing his tobacco. Umbrere turned his eyes to old Mambo from where he was bound, saying, You cursed me with your words. Umtipia was silent on the log where they were tied, planning what to do. Ponali, though he had captured Tariwali's slaves, was not yet satisfied. He wanted to get Chaliwali himself and his friends and the servants he had in the forest. Now the sun went down and still Chaliwali had not appeared. Ponali ordered a big fire to be made and all the slaves to be brought near the fire so that they could not run away. He told them to lie down and keep quiet 
and whoever made a noise would have a red-hot iron on his backside. Let me assure you that old Mambo and the others who had this could not sleep. Ponali told his Askari, Tonight we shall wait up with the guns for Chaliwani and his people here in the camp. I know he will come. Their guns were the kind used long ago, very troublesome to fire. They had to be filled with gunpowder, and they kicked so that whoever was firing had to cling to a big tree. They sounded like a cannon. The Askari now prepared the guns, loading them with powder, ready for Chaliwali and his companions. Now, Chaliwali had lost his way to the valley of lion grass. He saw far off the light of the huge fire, and he praised Mrere to his three friends, thinking he had made it to guide his master. Going towards the big fire, Chaliwali said, Yes, now Mrere has some sense. If you want these people to obey you, there is only one language they know. That is, speak harshly. Then he told his servants, If you stick by me, you'll become like Mrere and Mtipia. You'll be in charge of men and ivory. Do you hear? The servants answered, We have heard your words. They were going down towards the valley when this conversation took place. It was eight o'clock. The night was pitch dark and the new moon had just gone down. The light of the fire was a real guide for them to the camp. Chaliwali told his friends, I do not wish for anything to eat. All I want to do is drop on my bed as I am very tired. If you want anything, ask Umrere and Umtipia. They are still waiting for me. I meant to camp further on in the mountains, but we shall set out tomorrow morning. Tomorrow I will have no mercy. We shall travel all day without resting, and they will know they are only slaves. He and his three friends and fifteen servants were almost at the camp when Chaliwali began to call thus, Umbrere, come and meet me. Umbrere could not answer him. In his heart, he was good at saying, Not I, perhaps another Umbrere. When Pwanali heard the shouts, he went to meet Chaliwali holding an unsheathed sword. As he drew near, he did not question him. He advanced on Chaliwali and pierced him in his stomach and cut off his head. Chaliwali fell down dead on the ground, not on his bed. As for the other Arabs with him, their bodies were all destroyed by the guns which Pwanali's Askari were firing. The servants of Chaliwali, seeing the danger of sudden death, raised their hands crying, Master, my master, we are your slaves, your slaves. The Askari did not wish to kill the servants, knowing that they were but slaves like themselves, for in killing them, they might kill their own uncles or cousins. So they caught them and brought them to the fire where they slapped their faces. The whole camp smelt of gunpowder and Chaliwali lay dead, he and his three companions. And those guns continued firing, although the fight was now over. On all sides, they answered each other, Po, po, po! It was indeed the joy of the conquest. And with many words of boasting, the guns roared. Po, they said. We muskets are not loaded with water. Po, po! Today is the day. Po, po! The day of Mwini. Shwee! Because one of the bullets whizzed past. This was their kind of fighting. Lying in wait, robbing and killing one another, but they dared not sleep where they had fought, lest the noise attract other robbers like themselves. The slaves that were beside the fire were tightly bound so that they would not run away in the night. Mrere and Mtipia had been untied from the log and put with the other slaves. Chaliwali's gun and those of his friends were taken by Pwanali, who now ordered Kupata to lead the journey in the night while he followed behind, guarding the slaves with his askari. He was afraid of meeting an enemy stronger than he, one who would rob him as he had robbed Chaliwali. So the journey went into the night towards the coast. What shall I say to you? Animals were much better off than those slaves. Animals do sleep, but day and night were the same to the slaves. As for Chaliwali, when he had dreamt about the carcasses the night they came to the forest of elephants, he was really dreaming about what would befall him and his friends. He was cursed by Mrere in the day, and that very night his body was eaten by hyenas. The caravan of slaves travelled in the night with difficulty, and in the morning they were close to the mountains which had very many rocky caverns. 
Drawing near, they heard a sound like thunder. It was the roaring of numberless lions which lay in those caves. When the sun was up, the lions started to come out of their holes to warm themselves, and slaves wondered much at this sight, for the rocks were alive with these great beasts. It was Puanali's turn to head the caravan in the daytime, but when he saw the lions, he was afraid. He told his overseer, Kupata, to lead the slave, saying, I never have good luck. If I lead, we are sure to fall among the lions. Kupata answered his master, Why do you say that? You are the one who was leading when we came to the valley of the lion grass and captured Chaliwali's slaves. But Puanali insisted that he was unlucky and that his overseer Kupata must take the lead. The real reason was that he feared the lions. Kupata knew that his master was always a coward and that in many things he depended on him. But as he had been promised more money and four women to himself, he did his work honestly and he was faithful to his master in everything. When he took the lead, he warned everyone to go quietly as they were in danger. He said, if these beasts were to rush at us, not one of us would escape. The lions started to roar, terrifying the slaves whose bowls were twisted for fear. Poor old Mambo. His eyes stuck out from his head, and still more lions were coming out of their dens. But the Almighty led the beasts away, down to the valley of the lion grass. When the slaves saw that, they said, The Almighty found us with no guilt. Death came to us, and death went away. Other slaves said, those lions came out like that because they knew their enemy Chiponda was caught and there was no one to shoot them. But when the slaves got to the top of the mountains, they could see far away the mountains and the hills of their homeland. And they fell down and wept, taking no notice of their bonds. They were all as if mad, thinking how they were being driven from their country. Kupata was angry with them and he beat them severely. But the more he beat them, the more they cried for their homeland, caring little for Kupata's fierceness. Though they had seldom wept before, they now cried in bitterness, wailing and saying, We have been removed from our gods. We have been taken from our trees of sacrifice, far from the departed spirits of our fathers. The spirits that guard our souls are left behind. Our fathers' graves are left behind. And here we are, like shadows of death. Puanali thought he had better turn the journey towards the valley of lion grass. He kept them quiet, saying, Do not weep anymore. I am returning you home. The slaves did not believe him. Their hearts were comforted only by old Mumbo's sensible advice when he told them, I am an old man, older than anybody here, and I can bear all there is to bear. I do not weep. So do you likewise. You have no need to keep on weeping. By and by they reached the river where Mwinyo Upate had bidden farewell to Ponali when one was going down with slaves and the other was coming up country to capture more. Kupata advised Ponali to camp there where water was plentiful, but he refused. Even now he went in fear of meeting another stronger than himself who might avenge the blood of Chaliwali and his followers. After they had rested for a while and had drunk enough water, they went on in the night. The journey was long and troublesome to the slaves as they could not see their way. All the while, they were leaving their country further behind them. While they travelled with much difficulty in the hot climate and without food, many became ill and many died. Then Ponali realised that if he did not loosen their bonds, he might have no slaves left. But he decided that someone stronger than he might attack him and others might run away, so he did not loosen their bonds. It was about this time that they reached the place where they saw many monkeys. In the morning, they were amazed to see them in crowds, and the monkeys were amazed to see such peculiar people. The monkeys started rattling and doing all kinds of gymnastics. They climbed the trees and picked the wild fruits, which are monkey fruits, and ate them. The slaves did not know these fruits, but when they saw the monkeys eating them, they ate them too. They also ate roots and leaves, which they saw the monkeys eat, and these mixed herbs were tonic for them for many diseases. Even Puanali ate the monkeys' fruits, and old Mambo said, Do not worry about taking this fruit. Puanali is eating it too. 
The slaves saw the monkeys do many wonderful acts, such as if the Almighty himself had sent them to serve his people who were ill-treated. Years later, nearly all the children of the freed slaves knew this story of the monkeys, having been told it over and over again by their parents. When the fruits were finished in that place and the slaves that were sick had gotten better, Ponali decided to move on. The monkeys guessed at this and they also moved, leading the way down. And instead of carrying ivory like the slaves, those mimicking monkeys carried pieces of wood they picked up. Old Mambo, who had a cheerful heart, told the others, The monkeys are your guides now. When the rest, we must rest too. And when they move on, we must do the same. He often gave them words of advice, although he had bonds like the rest. The cruel yoke which Umtipia had on his neck got broken, but he kept quiet so that they would not know. As they went along, it rained heavily, and they had to camp where they could for shelter. Naked they were and shivering with cold. When the monkeys saw that the slaves had put down their loads of ivory, they also put down the sticks of wood they were carrying, and these were useful as firewood. The slaves were amazed at such help and the kindness from the monkeys. Pornali himself depended on them to guide him to the coast, for he had lost his way, although he would not admit to it. And he tried to deceive the slaves by saying their troubles would soon be over. So they followed the monkeys until they reached a place where there were many baobab trees. The slaves thought the calibre shrews that were in the baobab were birds' nests, but the monkeys climbed the trees and started eating the fruits so that the slaves knew that these were good for food. They picked up those that the monkeys dropped and sucked the seeds. Ponali too was fond of sucking these seeds. Once while he was standing beside the fruit pickers, one of the monkeys caused the green calabash to fall on the centre of Ponali's head and he was ill for several days. The illness of Ponali made the caravan stop longer at this camp than was at first intended. The slaves were given the job of making ropes from the fibres of the baobab trees. When Ponali was better, he came to watch their work. Old Mambo asked him, Master, what are these ropes for? Ponali answered, They will do to build with where we are going. If these ropes are for tying together the poles of a house, old Mambo said, they will not do. They are too thick. Nobody answered him. Ponali told them to gather many calabash fruits to take with them, as he could see that the monkeys were about to go from that place. From there, they went and camped among the sweet almond trees. Here, the trees were loaded with sweet almonds, enough food for both the monkeys and the slaves. At first, Ponali was very glad to arrive, for he recognized this as the place where he was to meet his master, Umenyupate. But when he did not find him there, he was not pleased. He was afraid of going down to the harbor without Umenyupate, because he had many slaves and much ivory, and he feared to fall among robbers. As they were nearing the coast, Ponali thought the slaves might run away, and so he added to their bonds, binding them with the ropes that they had made of baobab fibers. Old Mambo said, I knew these robes were not for the purpose of building. Early in the morning, the monkeys led the way downwards and Ponali and his slaves followed them until they reached the shore among the mangrove trees. The slaves were terrified at the sight of the endless sea and being naked, they suffered from the great heat of the sun and the stings of many mosquitoes. After resting a while in the forest of thick mangroves, the monkeys moved towards the right side of the shore, and when the sun was going down, they arrived at their home, a rocky coast with many caves. It is a fact that monkeys often travel from the coast inland as far as their fruits are obtainable, and then go back the same route. Evidently, they had been on their return journey when the caravan had the good fortune to meet them. It must have been the will of the Almighty to use these monkeys as guides to his people, for Ponali did not know the way. The caves of the monkeys were wonderful and very big. They were not shaped by any person, but they were the work of God alone, who carved them by the power of waters beating continually on the rocks. The slaves called them stone holes, and hidden in them they spent the night, fearing and trembling to hear the roar of the waves. In the morning, Puanali recognized the place, for he had once concealed other slaves there while waiting for Munyupate's dows.
so he left Kupata in charge while he went to look for his master at the harbour of the slave market. Meanwhile, their friends, the monkeys, returned with dates they had picked along the shore, landed by the tide, and they began to throw them at the slaves. If it had not been for the gifts of dates, many would have died of starvation because Puanali delayed. All this time, Mtipia was serious. He was planning something. When Puanali arrived at the harbour of the slave market, he saw many dhows, among them two of his masters, but he could not find Mwenyu Upate. He asked the sailors, who told him, Today is the second day since Mwenyu Upate went after you to the camp of sweet almond trees. Puanali then hastened to that camp where he found Mwenyu Upate with his twelve slaves about to pitch his tent. Each was glad to see the other, and not wishing to miss the chance, they went down to the caves in the night. Mwinyu Pate was surprised when he saw such a big number of slaves, and he could not make out how Ponali could have got the whole caravan to the coast in safety. So Ponali told him the story, how he fought with Chaliwali and conquered him, and how the monkeys were as good as a human pilot to them. But Mwenyu Upate perceived that the slaves were too many for his dows and he decided to sell some of them at the harbour to the other Arabs that were there. Thus, he divided them into two lots, selecting those to be shipped to Arabia and those to be sold at the harbour. That was an extract from The Freeing of the Slaves in East Africa by James Jumambotella. The book was originally published in 1934 in Kiswahili under the title Uhuru Wawatumwa. James Jumambotella happens to be my maternal great-grandfather. The Arab Dao that was ferrying the original Mbotella and others from the slave market in Zanzibar was intercepted in the high seas by the British Navy and set alight. The slaves were then freed and brought to the coastal city of Mombasa to their new home, the Freer Town Settlement and its origins date back to 1875. Nipa's story can be found on Stitcher and iTunes to download. Please do me a favor and write a review and rate the podcast so that others can find us easily. Plus, you can also follow us on Facebook at Nipe Story and on Twitter we're at Nipe underscore story. We're also looking for short stories of between 750 to 3,500 words. So email your stories to producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit your short story for consideration. We look forward to hearing from you. Nipa Story is a Finger Piano production.